0: This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors.
1: We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while.
2: I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing.
0: Being bored is much better than being in intensive care.
2: Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive, and afternoon briefing. And I'm Frank Kelly from
1: RN Breakfast. PK, soon we're going to be joined by Sydney Morning Herald journalist Jackie Mailey to wrap up a year that has been, what's the word, unprecedented the in word. so many
2: ways. Do you think unprecedented is the word of 2020? I know ISO got the nod, but... What do you think? I think it is the word of 2020 and we keep saying it's too it's used too often but there is no better word for a lot of what's happened like <laughs> it hasn't been over-egged at all in my view. Look before she gets here and we look forward to speaking to Jackie it's been an enormous week in politics because it's the last sitting week of this enormous year. Uh, the government's going out with a bit of a bang in many ways. The long-awaited changes to industrial relations um, have been revealed. The big reveal has happened. You might remember that earlier in the year, unions and business uh, employers groups, you know, they all sat down. They were asked to sit down. Big, bigger uh, announcement by the Prime Minister in a spirit of cooperation to try and nut out areas where they could agree to work together to, to make some reforms in relation to industrial relations. It, you know, lots was written about it, that it was the Accord Mark II on wages and working conditions. I always thought that Team was a Team Australia. Little, that's it. Team
1: Australia, I love that. They yeah. were all using it, unions, work, employer groups. They were all talking Team Australia.
2: They were, and it was over-egged, though, even from the beginning. I mean, I thought the idea that this was going to be the Accord Mark II, yeah. it was sort of the excitement of newspaper colleagues being able to write something more than anything, in my view. But, look, they had those talks. I think it's fair to say that those talks failed to produce much in the way of agreement or unity. In fact, there are two key sections of the bill that the unions have basically branded a betrayal, which is pretty strong language. Let's just go to the two. The first is about the treatment of casual workers and the second deals with what's called the boot, Uh, It's called the Better Off Overall Test. Now, let's start with casuals. The the government has come up with a statutory definition of casual employment and a requirement to offer casual staff part or full-time contracts after 12 months. It sounded good on paper, but the unions say not so good. Unions and Labor say there is no enforcement mechanism. Meaning if your employer doesn't follow those regulations, you'd have to take them to court. And of course, you know, think about that. It's pretty sensible to think most people wouldn't have the facility or the mm. capability to Especially do that. Especially if you're a casual worker. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so that there's that. And then there's the bush. And this is the Big ticket item, I reckon. So the Fair Work Commission will be will be given under the proposal, and let's go to what's already happened here, the the limited scope to approve agreements that don't guarantee all workers are better off overall. That is a huge deal. So it's for mm. two years. Um, the government says it's because of coronavirus that you know they want to create as many jobs as possible. So if workers agree, because they would have to agree, then then they you know and they would essentially cut pay conditions, they wouldn't be better off overall, but be able to maintain their jobs, right? You keep your job, but you take less money or less hours or your conditions erode in some way, in some cases, because we're in a recession or we're we're not in an official recession, actually, but we are in a, you know, Corona recovery period. This one's the big stinker for the unions and for the labour movement and it's got all of the old baggage of the industrial relations wars and work choices. Uh, You know, We know the Howard government misstepped big time on that and the unions are red hot on this issue, Fran, and it seems to me like the government looks like it's already maybe capitulating.
1: Yeah, it does look like that and we'll talk about why in a moment because the unions, you're right, they have really flared up. Sally McManus says this is the biggest attack on workers since work choices. Now if you actually think of that about that, PK. It sounds bad, but basically the government hasn't done anything on IR, the coalition, since work choices, since Tony Abbott declared work choices dead, buried and cremated because they're too scared. Basically, it's, uh, you know, become electoral poison, this notion of IR reform for the coalition. Um, but this pandemic has highlighted the need for some changes. The government, as you say, says it's all about trying to create jobs in a pandemic-affected economy, but they have really bought one hell of a fight with Labor and the unions here. Just looking at those those casual employment changes. The ACTU had wanted changes to casual employment conditions and they say that this pandemic has really exposed how vulnerable many of the 2.6 million casual workers in the economy are when the economy hits tough times. But they say that these changes that have been put forward by the government, they say they're only there for two years, they say they're only, you know, going to be for, you know, certain industries, but actually what they actually do is strip rights and entitlements away and protections away from casual workers and will leave them worse off. So that wouldn't seem to be a good idea. And on the better off overall test, again, the unions say this is an attack on workers' wages that will get built into the enterprise bargaining system. Forget this two-year window. Enterprise agreements will be signed. They'll last for years and there'll be years again after that until they're wound back and workers get back to where they were before. So... As I say, it was supposed to be a Team Australia situation and the unions say this is actually a real breach of faith because Sally McManus, who was around those tables with the employers and the government, says this notion of changing the better-off overall test, the boot, was never even raised. It wasn't discussed. So she sees this as a real betrayal. Labor has really jumped to the union cause and there's some obvious um, political reasons from that. Here's Anthony Albanese. And what they did
2: was just spring it in the legislation that they introduced yesterday. And if they're serious about taking that change off the table, they should walk into Parliament this morning,
1: uh, remove that bill, just withdraw it and reintroduce a bill without those provisions in it. So are they serious about taking those provisions off the table, PK? There's big hints. The uh, Attorney-General, Christian Porter, who's also the IR minister, you know, says it's not a take-it-or-leave-it situation. What are, they, what are they preparing to do and why so quickly?
2: Yeah, well, I think I can give you a few hints why I think <laughs> uh, it took them so long to make any suggestions or reforms, changes on industrial relations because they've been so stung mm. by obviously work choices. We've discussed that a zillion times. Everyone, I think it's one of those really well known things in Australia. Actually, even you know among mainstream people, like we all know, they went too far. They with really work choices. did, and it and it and it changed everything. It actually changed the debate and the fault lines and everything. And so they've been very reluctant. We have a Prime Minister who, uh, we've said this before, is not an ideologue, and that doesn't mean he doesn't have strong views, but he's a pragmatist. So why I think that they are probably willing to, um, you know, change direction pretty quickly is they do not want fight on this. They do not want the next election to be fought on industrial relations. They've been there, done that. Um, he's, a, he's a guy who knows how to learn the lessons. He's seen it happen. He knows that they can galvanise a pretty strong campaign. Um, so I'm not, I'm not at all surprised because I don't think that's really, you know, a passion project either for them. And, mm. and I think that's where some of that's coming from. Look, they'll have some other wins, Fran, you know, the de-amalgamating unions bill, which they do have support for. Yeah, that's gone Labor. through. That's, that's happened. Where, so. so there's that. Uh, wages theft, where they look like they're taking that seriously. So I think for Christian Porter, too, as a minister that's been working on this, getting a couple of things through is better than nothing. And they'll cut their losses. That's that's yeah. what I reckon. Because essentially,
1: you can look at it a different way. It's not about IR. It's it c- could turn into an electoral trap for the government because you know, this is not their natural territory. It is Labor's. Anthony Albanese has had really nothing to fight with all year in this pandemic year, and this would give Labor a platform that draws the Labor movement together. They've been pretty divided uh, within the political party and and the broader Labor movement, um, you know, on a number of points through this year. This would draw them together and would give them something to fight for, a
2: talismanic, you know, issue. That's the last thing Scott Morrison wants. He does not want that. Look... Let's zoom through a few more big developments this week because, as we say, last parliamentary sitting week, uh, quite a lot is happening. On Wednesday, a parliamentary committee into the destruction of the Indigenous caves at Duke and Gorge handed down its interim report and it is scathing. It's called Never Again. And the chair of the committee, Warren Ench, um, joined me on our drive. Here's what he had to say. There's a
0: lot of things uh, which contributed to the destruction of the shelters, The PKKP faced a perfect storm with no support or protection from anywhere. They were let down by Rio Tinto, the West Australian government, the Australian government, their own lawyers and native title law.
2: And I think that if we reflect on 2020 and it's been an awful year for the world, but the destruction of... Aboriginal heritage and 46,000 years of cultural history I think is one of the darkest moments for our country. We've been talking about it throughout the year but this report it's an interim report is a key part of that discussion. It's Mm. a damning report into as I say Rio culture but Patrick Dodson who of course is a very you know the, the father of reconciliation Labor Senator from WA he accused Rio of running a don't care culture now the inquiry recommends the mining giant compensate traditional owners for the loss of sac- the sacred site and key, uh, commit to reconstructing it. Yeah. Uh, which is really important and it's worth listening to all of our interviews. You spoke to Marcia Langton, I spoke to a couple of people too, including Pat Dodson, about what would happen if you were to reconstruct what that actually means. It makes seven recommendations dealing with compensation, Indigenous heritage legislation, ongoing mining operations, a moratorium, uh, really important changes. And I do think this is kind of a moment to pause in our country Uh, If they say never again, well, under current legislation, as Marcia Langton said to you, never again actually won't, it will be again. Under current legislation, you well, have it will, to change the, the laws.
1: Exactly right, and a pause is really what this inquiry has called for. This is an interim report, and you mentioned the word moratorium. There, it's actually asking everyone to just stop for a moment. No more approvals under Section 8, eighteen of the WA uh, Mining and Heritage Act. Um, you know, Rio Tinto to stop all plans to blast any other areas that could be uh, in the Pilbara that could be problematic. It wants a pause because it wants it points out the flaws in all the laws the state laws the federal laws and the, um, the the next the next iteration of this report the next installment is likely to really zero in on the federal government the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Heritage Act and urge the um the you know the federal indigenous affairs minister to have more power and more say here because basically everyone in this case just sort of went huh through yep. their hands in the air, oh, it's and happened. everyone deserted the traditional owners. Even their own lawyers didn't use what potential legal frameworks they may have had to combat this, and by then it was too late. The mines were laid, and boom, it was gone. So it, it's very, very strong language in this report, emotional language, actually. They were clearly very affected by the grief and distress of the traditional owners when they went to Western Australia and talked to them. Um, And they just want everyone to stop, the nation to stop and consider and get our laws in order. My, traditional owners say they're not opposed to mining. No. A lot of traditional owners want mining because it gives them economic opportunities. It gives them a slice of the economic action, if you like. They just want to have control and a better balance in negotiating power over where mining occurs and how traditional and important heritage sites are protected.
2: Yeah, look, there's no other way to see it, Fran, that the destruction of those caves is a cultural property crime. It has, I think, international global significance and, and it should have consequences, serious consequences. And I think it's a shameful moment and um, it will always be shameful for our country that that was allowed to happen. Yep, I agree with that. Hey, PK, should we bring in Jackie Maley, our Let, guest this week? Let's do it. Let's bring in our guest this week. Jackie Mayley is a columnist and senior journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald. Jackie, welcome. Thank you very much, PK.
1: Jackie, it's been a wild ride this 2020 year, my God. We're going to get to the politics of the pandemic, um, you know, the handling of it in a moment. But I think we we really should remember this year started with the fires, those bushfires, unprecedented. We love, we're going to use that word a lot, I think, this podcast. Um, but that's how a lot of former... Uh, fire chiefs described it as unprecedented. Those fires unleashed a furious debate then about climate change and a focus a focus on climate policy, which, let's face it, I think you know most people agree is wanting. But as we head back towards the fire season again, we've got Scott Morrison perhaps giving some ground to his critics here and overseas. He's announced this week Australia will not try and use those carryover Kyoto credits to reach our Paris commitments. That commitment was a cut of 26 to 28% of emissions from 2005 levels. We're not going to use carryover credits. Turns out we won't need them. Is this a major
0: concession we're seeing from the government here, a change of tone, do you think? I think you can look at it really. You can look at it really cynically, or you can look at it more positively. And to look at it more posi- positively, you would say, yeah, this is a concession, and this is, you know, international pressure and domestic pressure coming to bear on the prime minister and and him, you know, basically listening to the wiser voices probably within his party, and n- not to mention economists, scientists, all those experts um, that we've listened to a little bit more on other scores this year, and uh, and actually responding to that. Or you could say more cynically, you know, it's kind of like if you are a negotiator and you take the, you know, such an extreme position in a negotiation and then you give up something quite small because you've taken such a, extreme position in the first place, you look like you're giving a bigger concession than you really are. I and think that one. Yeah. So, <laughs> do I. well, yeah, but, you know, surprise, surprise, I'm a cynic too. So basically you, you look at the international landscape and you've got Boris Johnson, you know, about, you know, basically yeah. saying we are green all the way, we are green jobs, we are green growth. That's that's the way our economy's going. Get on going. the wagon. Joe Biden's obviously been elected. He's, you know, going to set um, uh, the emissions the emissions reduction um, of net zero by 2050. The rest of the world is looking that way. The consensus is there. So Australia is going to rock up at, you know, at international um, climate events and look like a pariah. So this is something really small that they could they can easily do um, and they're going to meet their emissions targets anyway. So they can give it away and they can look like they're um, making a major concession. It's not really a major concession because now the goalposts have changed and everyone's saying we actually need to move quicker and we need a lot, we need to have much more ambitious targets.
1: I'm not really a cynic, actually. I'm not for a political commentator. I'm not very cynical, but I think, um, as you say, it's the global The global landscape has changed dramatically, particularly in the United States, and I think Australia can see it's going to be under maximum pressure to change. That carryover credit thing was so embarrassing for Australia at that last climate forum. We were, as how did Anthony Albanese put it to me this week, we were left quivering in a corner with Saudi Arabia and Brazil, basically. So that wasn't wasn't going to fly. Um, And I think Scott Morrison, you know, PK was talking about this a little earlier in the podcast, how Scott Morrison is a pragmatist. He would like to get this climate issue kind of off his plate if he can and not have it seen as the big division between uh, the government, the Coalition and Labor, I think, at the next election. If he can neutralise it to some degree, he would quite like to, but at the same time not unleashing all those forces in his in his party room. So I think this is Scott Morrison trying to find a middle ground while still being able to champion gas-led recoveries and all the rest of it.
0: Yeah, and going back to, you know, the more positive, optimistic... Um side of me. Uh, I, I mean, I, I did sort of think this when Scott Morrison was elected because he's, it, despite his coal brandishing, he's not actually fiercely ideological mm. on this, like some people in his party are. And he's not really fiercely ideological on anything. And that's a good thing in this context because, as you say, he can be a pragmatist, he can be sensible, which is like... And eh. the world is moving ahead of them anyway. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. re- renewable take-up in Australia is astronomical. Well, look at what the states are doing. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is, you know, when we hear time and time again that it's jobs versus jobs versus green growth, jobs, you know, coal jobs, jobs versus no green jobs. Well, why are the state governments moving then? You know, if it's, if it's such an economic disaster, why are the state governments doing it? If voters hate it so much, why are the state governments doing it? It's, it's only at the federal level we've seen that deadlock. And and Scott Morrison, as you say, is a pragmatist. And he, I mean, he, he's not an idiot. Like he'd be listening, he mm. look, looks at the science, he looks at all, all his economic, all the economic forecasts, everyone in Treasury would be telling him, you know, um, what's happening. And you just have to look at the stock market and what companies are doing and um, and boards. And it's only going in one direction. Yeah, it's only going one direction. Look, the
2: big defining event of this year, of course, is the global pandemic. Even with Victoria's second wave, uh, the landscape here looks very, very different to the rest of the world. Jackie, what's gone right for us?
0: Oh, my God. We, we've been so lucky in this country. I mean, this is such a good news story for us and it's really the only one that's mattered and it just shows how well we can cope with an immediate and, you know, present danger when we need to. When we listen to the science. When we listen to the science. And I, I, I do think there's a combination perhaps culturally in Australia of quite a good communitarian spirit, like a communal spirit. You look at what Melbourne's done and it's incredible really, that feat. And I'm not sure there's many countries that could culturally accomplish that. And the other side of that is we're probably you know we're pretty good we're pretty good at obeying rules like we, yeah, like we to love rules. ourselves that, yeah <laughs> like we're we're okay with with quite strong you know authoritarian measures it turns out <laughs> I, I I think that's true, and
1: I think that thing you said of you know we carried this off culturally i mean look at America they just thanksgiving they just don't even care they just jump on the planes, look at the Brits at the at the shopping mall the other day (laughs) outside Harrods. They were there in their droves. We just didn't do that. We obeyed the rules. But I also think there was a political element to this, which is the National Cabinet. That I mean, it's fractured and we've talked about that a lot and and probably you might want to talk about it again now, but that National Cabinet, um, supported by the behaviour
0: of the federal opposition, I think was really... Our political response was also key to this. Yeah, it was great. It worked really, really well. I mean, it worked. It got all the big calls right um, in terms of the international border closures, in terms of the scientific advice, in terms of its communication. I mean, when mm-hmm. you think about Scott Morrison doing those press conferences, you know, us listening, you know, sort of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Australians sitting down and listening to a press conference where a scientist is talking to us and telling us, telling us what the threat is and and telling us how to cope with it. So the communication was really good and obviously the economic response was, um, you've I mean, I don't know if you could say peerless, but it's got to be right up there. Yeah. And, you know, some commentators have made the point that job, uh, that Scott Morrison was sort of dragged to various measures like JobKeeper sort of kicking and screaming where mm-hmm. he was reluctant. But at the end of the day he got it right and he made the right call. So what, whatever process it took him or... or the government to get there, it doesn't really matter in the end because they seem to have got it right.
2: Yeah, well, that's funny you say that because that goes back to the point we've already made about him sometimes not being obsessed with ideology, right? Like he was Mr Big Spender... Uh, you know, yes, they went in at the start of the pandemic and they didn't want this wage subsidy system that ended up happening JobKeeper. But then the the sort of backflip on that was almost immediate. It didn't take long before he committed to it. So it showed again that he's, he, he actually pivots and responds pretty quickly. Now, you know, yeah, course- and
1: Labor's, Labor's making much of the fact that they were ahead of the government on this, which is true. They were. But the government, thank God, the government saw what was the right thing to do what had to be done saw what was happening in other countries which wasn't enough and um and
2: so responded eventually yeah, Probably I mean, a bit
1: slow, but we got there. And that's yeah. frustrating and
2: for Labor because
0: they like, yeah, okay, if they come like, up with an on. idea, it gets stolen. <laughs> this is my idea. Well, that's what good <laughs> leaders do, right, or effective leaders do. They they listen to everybody. They take the, the the best ideas from the smartest people in the room and they pass them off as their own. So, you know, you, you, I mean, they'll, they'll get credit for it because the economy, um, looks like it's going to be um, rebounding fairly well, although obviously they've, the economists are saying that it's going to be patchy. But they'll get credit for it and ultimately that's what leaders need to do. They need to take the best ideas and to implement them. And and you've got to say that's what's been done on the health measures and the economy at the federal and the national cabinet level. Jackie, the other huge issue of this year was China, the relationship with
1: China. Um, It seems every couple of days now a new Australian export is banned. In fact, I think Australia is banned, capital V banned basically, except for iron ore, which China needs for now, though we also read frighteningly because it's propping up our economy, that they're finding other um, markets of iron ore as well. Um, The government's handling of this... You can look on objectively and say, well, really, what can we do? China's not picking up the phone. They're trying to teach us a lesson. They're trying to teach other middle powers a lesson. That's what this is all about, submission from an emerging superpower, which is true enough. But Penny Wong said that she thinks the government needs to do more to actively try and manage the relationship. Kevin Rudd said, you know, we should do more and talk less. What do you think of
0: the government's
1: efforts here so far?
0: It's so hard to criticise you know, Scott Morrison on this because I think he's got the people behind him, which is why I think Labor's line on it is walking a very dangerous... They're playing a bit of a dangerous game because I think Scott Morrison, for example, standing up to that or making a song and dance about that nasty tweet last week from a sort of lower order Chinese government official... It it would have played probably pretty well, and but before
1: that, did he make a mistake getting a, appearing to be so close to Donald Trump and the America's response to China? You know, did we did we make some missteps
0: early on? I mean, look, I, I think it was a, is a it was a terribly bad look generally when Scott Morrison went over um, to the United States and effectively appeared at a Donald Trump you know campaign rally in a mm. in a um, in in the cardboard factory or whatever it was. That was a that was a terrible look for a lot of different reasons. So yeah, I suppose that would have sent a pretty um, strong message to China, and it maybe would have inflamed some tensions. It's I mean, you've, Scott Morrison's got to manage his domestic domestic sort of market on this, and also the actual relationship. Perhaps um, there's I mean, Labor's point essentially I suppose is that there's too much megaphone diplomacy, and it's not going to get us anywhere, and you know it'll ultimately be detrimental to our economic interests. And that may well be true, but I also think that part of the publicness of Scott Morrison's response, particularly recently, has been quite calculated. Because if you don't make that response pub- publicly, then it doesn't. You know, he's sending a message to China, but also other middle powers, and also perhaps signalling to America. You know, this is the stance that we're taking, and we're going to need you to back us up. Muscle mm-hmm. up, yeah. Look, another
2: issue that's been sort of doing the rounds, and I think it's going to heat up again, Jackie, is this letter that's been written by the communications minister, Paul Fletcher, to Ita Buttrose, um, you know, asking a series of questions to the ABC and the ABC board over that four-corner story into parliamentary culture very much focused on Alan Tudge and also the industrial relations minister Christian Porter and asking questions there about you know the the culture and some relationships they had and appropriateness and everyone can go see the four corners right but the the letter's been sent it was kind of tweeted out too so that the public knew that he was going hard on this and Today, we found out in, and we're recording this on a Thursday morning, there will, will be more details in coming days. But Nikki Sava, who I think is a pretty reliable person, you know, columnist for the Australian uh, former Howard government staffer, Costello staffer, you know, knows a lot of people in the, in the coalition. She writes that Ita Butros will write back and say, no, you know, no, we, you know, we, we, you know, we're not going to succumb basically to your pressure, and that's me paraphrasing. It's not exactly the language she's going to use. But what do you make of the way that this is kind of being, uh, you know, fought out in the public sphere over this story and the way the government's tried to attack this?
0: I mean, I I, I do have strong, quite strong views about it. Um, I I wrote a column last week saying that I thought that you know Paul Fletcher had behaved inappropriately because I think that led a sort of. Merges the interests, the political interests with the of the government, which is basically to defend its two ministers who were, um, you know, criticised in this program or the subject of this program, emerges political interests with the duty and the role of, um, you know, him, his, him as a minister and the, as the communications minister, he's the ABC's minister, he's their guy, he's supposed to um, stand up for their statutory independence, and I just don't know if it's, yeah, I guess I just don't think it's appropriate for the government minister to, to write a letter like that, which is made very public and to basically put his government in opposition to the public broadcaster in that way. The it was a very aggressive letter. I mean yeah, it there was a very strong list of
1: word. Yeah. of, you know, you must answer this, you must answer this. He's allowed to ask, but we are in, it's an
0: independent relationship and they the, the minister has no right to direct the board. No, absolutely. This the statu- statutory independence is a cornerstone of the ABC, and nobody understands that better than the communications minister. So you know, it's kind of like, well, what what what, do you, what are they trying to do there? Are mm. they really trying to preserve um, you know the balance and the sort of objectivity of the ABC or of Four Corners? And in in that, if that's the case, and wh- why is the government in the business of policing journalism? Like, what what? What role do they have in doing that? Or you know, it's completely inappropriate. And if that's not what they're trying to do, then what are they trying to do? Well, it could also look like they're trying to pressure the ABC. It could also look like they're trying to pick a fight with the ABC, or you know, just slowly whittle away the reputation of the ABC in the public's eyes, because we know that the ABC is inordinately popular in the in with the Australian public, so that they can have sort of a political justification to further cut back its spending. And in the context of, you know, the, the larger media environment in Australia and indeed globally this year, but also just the ongoing trend, you know, we've, we've got shrinking newsrooms, we've got regional, um, regional media outlets and newspapers folding, you know, at, at a rate of knots. And we have an increasing concentration of the media in this country, not to mention the threats of Google and Facebook. You know, they're the threats, they're the big things that I think a communications minister should have his eye on at the moment, not policing the journalism of one show that happens to be particularly critical of the government that is broadcast on the ABC.
2: And the other thing is a bit of an own goal too, right? Like a story gets broadcast, there's a bit of talk about it, then the story, people talk about new things. That's the sort of 24-hour news cycle. What a way of keeping it on the agenda too, right?
0: Yeah, and I think... um, I mean, look, I, it, I don't want to get into the the ins and outs of the show because I think everybody has a different opinion on it and it was really, like, divisive. I know in our letters pages some people loved it, some people thought it was great and other people really didn't like it. Uh, but I think the broad points that was trying to make about the culture of um, Parliament House, the culture of Canberra and the sexism of that culture are actually pretty spot on mm-hmm. and we know that the government has had a problem with this in the past so they've certainly faced those kinds of criticisms before particularly, you know, around um the, the the leadership change between Turnbull and Morrison. And you might remember that Scott Morrison at that time I think said that he was going to do an investigation into bullying allegations that were made particularly by one female MP. I don't know. I've never, I keep meaning to ring up the Prime Minister's (laughs) office and say, what have happened with that? What was the result of that? have had to focus on the pandemic. (laughs) That's That's what's happened
1: to that. Um, And speaking of the pandemic, and to wrap this up, because it's been such a strange year. You know, at the beginning, we didn't really think that we'd be shoving everything aside, we'd have, you know, politicians uh, beamed into Parliament question time from their homes or their offices or or whatever because we're in a national pandemic. So, very hard to predict how the politics. Politics of this year has played out. But next year could be an election year in this country. The Prime Minister says he's a full-termer, which would suggest it'll be the year after that. But a lot of people have got money on the fact that we'll be going to election at the end of next year which makes it very difficult for an opposition who couldn't really get a look in during the time of pandemic. And I think we've seen that, you know, every state and territory government, basically, the incumbents have benefited from being the government that's dealt with the pandemic and they've been re-elected. Tough year for Labor. There's some grumblings within Labor, some grumblings amongst some of the the Labor MPs about Anthony Albanese's leadership and his judgement on some issues. Do you think this is serious? Do you think there would be any consideration about Labor's leadership next year?
0: Yeah, in a in a word, I do, because I think that the caucus is looking at Anthony Albanese and thinking, you know, taking a really hard look at him now and saying, well, you know, yes, it's unprecedented times, but there hasn't been a lot of cut through on many issues this this year probably the best point of division or the, you know, the, the weakest spot that the government had is climate change, That the Labor Party's managed to make their climate change policy all about them. And that also ultimately, I suppose, um, rests with the leader. And they're looking at him and saying, is this a guy who's going to be able to win an election for us? And it's going to be a very hard election to win, because even though the government's only got a majority of one seat, as we know, there was big problems in Queensland last year. And a lot of the the seats that were sort of marginal um, ended up have ended up being now rusted on Liberal or um, LNP seats. So it's going to be a hard election and I think people, yeah, are, are, if not openly then at least amongst themselves questioning whether or not Anthony Albanese is the person who can win it for them. They've been handed possibly a bit of a gift this week with these industrial relations changes that the government is proposing and, um, you know, it looks like they're, going to run a pretty strong line on that. And it will be a sharp point of division between the government and Labor. And it's something I suppose, you know, if you look at it from the Labor perspective, you could sort of say, look, you know, it, it's a time of great job insecurity. The people who've been laid off from the pandemic are mostly, you know, people who are in casual or, you know, mm. insecure work anyway. Mm. And it's, we've got high unemployment relatively. And the you know, is this really the moment to sort of beat down wages and conditions? Because people who are trying to look for jobs probably won't have a lot of options, right? So they'll have to take what they can get. So they could run a pretty strong attack line on that stuff. And you know, Anthony Albanese, I think, could do a really good job of that. He's, you know, he's a good attack dog, and he is quite, you know, he's he's great in Parliament when he gets fired up. And I remember when he was the manager of government business and the manager of opposition business, he used to run these fantastic attacks on Tony Abbott that were really funny and entertaining and great. So we know he's got it in him. Um, Whether or not he can bring the caucus with him I don't know but... Look, it's yeah. We we will see. We will see. Timing is everything in politics, and it's tough timing for any opposition leader anywhere in the world. I reckon, mm. pretty yeah, much. Yeah, I mean, it has been such an extraordinary story this year. Just how the, the enormous popularity um um ratings of the leaders of the incumbents in the states. I mean, it's stuff that you only see in sort of, you know, dictatorships. It's amazing the numbers that they get. And I don't know how any opposition copes in that environment or tries to cut through in that environment. And you even have a situation in, in you know, particularly in Victoria where people are so, they don't just back their leader, but they are so they back him so hard that they, like, <laughs> literally abuse and troll people who <laughs> dare criticise him. That's they put the his name. face on pillow slips. It's like so un-Australian <laughs> to love a politician that much. Even if you support them, you know, you're not supposed to blind, blindly adore Look, them.
2: Look, it's funny you say that. That, Jackie, anytime I you know say anything, I'll say, oh, it's great because I'm a Melbourneian that we are uh, we've beaten coronavirus all these zero days and I will get like a gazillion tweets back at me saying, are you going to thank Daniel Andrew? <laughs> like, and I've got to say, I'm not going to thank any politician. It's like I think it's great that they that they actually achieved it, but I'm not going to. Anyway, no, no I'm not thanking be, any politician. Come on, politician. good on you, Dan. I am not <laughs> thanking any politician, whether it's Dan or Scott or
0: Josh. Glad None no, well, we, we, well, you can thank them by, by voting for them if that's what you want to do. Yeah, I think the that's, the, that's, the that's listeners on this podcast they, can do it. That's right. They that's love right. that. Hey,
2: Jackie, <laughs> you've been such a good guest. Thanks for coming on and have a oh, great break. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been fun. Thanks, Jackie. See you. Well, that's it for the party room for today, but, but more than just today, for 2020. I can't believe that, PK.
1: Finished for the year. What a year it's been. You've been locked up for most of it. The party room got chucked out for some of it because there was so much more important information to be getting to people rather than just what's going on with politics. You know, it was all about health and responses and survival, survival basically. It's been quite a year.
2: Look, hopefully it's been a useful source of political insight in what really has been an unprecedented year there. I got that back in. We started with it, ending with it, unprecedented. Unprecedented, our word of the year. We're both taking a break. Um, We're both off for a break soon, a longish break over summer, but we will be back. We will be back in your feed early next year. Yeah, that's right. So when Parliament's back, we will be back to giving you all of the analysis that you expect with the best guests we can possibly invite on. I hope you have an excellent summer break. I hope that it's not as miserable as last year's or as miserable as 2020. I'm sorry to call it miserable, but the bushfires and then the coronavirus pandemic, uh, it it has not been fun. So let's hope that the summer is virus-free and enjoyable. See you, Fran. Yeah, Yeah, everybody,
1: have a happy Christmas. Have a great summer. See you, Pika. Bye.